Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a real dilemma for anybody operating in this space, whether you're a journalist covering it or whether you're a committee considering how much do we need to be wary that we are giving them a platform which allows them to recruit? But also how much do we need to be wary of engaging in censorship's too strong a word, but uh, silencing or ignoring of these voices in a way that confirms their conspiracy theories and justifies in their minds what they believe. Hello, good people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia. And this week, I'm joined in the pod cave by James Patterson, who is a Liberal senator, and he is the chair of Parliament's, say it for me, James, so I don't get the name wrong. Powerful yes. Intelligence and Security Committee. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a spoiler about what might be coming up. Anyway, yes, James recently stepped into the chair of this committee, which the former chair was Andrew Hastie, who's moved up into the ministry. And I'm also with my wingman. (laughs) (laughs) That's where you introduce yourself, Daniel. Oh, I see. Yes. I didn't recognise the title. Daniel Hurst here. Yes, Daniel Hurst. (laughs) Regular listeners will know Daniel is in the Bureau in Canberra and he focuses on foreign defence security matters, which is why he's in with James and myself for this conversation. So let's start with the security environment at the moment. The committee is, well, the committee has a broad gamut of looking right across the security environment. There's there's a particular focus on extremism at the moment. So let's talk about that. How do you see the general security environment in Australia at the moment? That's a really good uh, and broad opening question, Catherine. The advice from our security agencies is that we have for some time been operating in a very serious threat environment. They classify it in their list of priorities as a probable threat environment, and that hasn't changed. And in most recent years, that threat has predominantly been from Islamist extremism, Islamist terrorism. But both ASIO, Victoria Police, other agencies that have submitted as part of this inquiry note that there is a growing threat of far-right extremist violence. They're concerned about that as a growing issue, and it is taking up a greater proportion of their workload. ASIO points out that they've been tracking right-wing extremists for decades. This is not a new issue, but it is an emerging issue, and it's taking up even more of their time. And obviously, the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand, which was an Australian citizen who conducted it and was a right-wing extremist, is a demonstration of how much damage 
just one person can do, acting on their own if they have access to a firearm. And other experiences in Australia on the Islamist terrorist front show that, again, unsophisticated, technically, attacks simply with a knife or a car can have enormous effect on soft targets, people walking around the street, and have a profound impact on our sense of safety and security in Australia. And you you said, James, that obviously right-wing extremism isn't a new phenomenon in Australia. It's just become, it's come to the fore in recent times and is taking up more of a share of the workload for intelligence agencies. Why do we think that is? There's lots of different factors that are contributing to it, but like other forms of extremists, right-wing extremists, particularly neo-Nazis and white supremacists or white nationalists, are radicalised online. They have access to increasingly extreme content that is influencing them and disturbingly increasingly young people are being influenced by this material. ASIO says that it's monitoring in both the Islamist space and the right-wing extremist space people as young as 13 and 14 who are consuming this material and exhibiting tendencies towards use of violence to justify their political objectives. Now, it's obviously only of interest to any security agency or force if the political beliefs they hold cross into the territory of justifying violence to achieve those ends. In Australia, you're entitled to have whatever weird and wacky beliefs you have if you only hold them peacefully and all you do is go to coffee shops and family barbecues and try and convince others of your wacky views. But if you show tendencies towards violence, then uh, that's when you become of interest. Hmm. And what about uh, over the Christmas break in the US? I mean, Mm. it takes us away from our own environment, but the storming of the Capitol was quite... Well, I, I can't find words for that, really. You're not, you're not alone. Um, I'm, I'm actually a former congressional intern, and when I was at university, led tours of that Capitol building for constituents of my congressman and gave them very poor, very potted history of their own country. Um, <laughs> I remember pointing out the apotheosis of Washington, which is the mural on the top of the Capitol dome, and explaining what that meant to them. It was very disturbing for me watching it, having had that memory of seeing rioters run amok around the Capitol in areas that you know, we weren't even allowed to go as permitted guests in the building. It was very disturbing and to show how vulnerable a public space like that can be to a large crowd sufficiently riled up as as they were. And that is a real lesson for us about our institutions and why they need to be protected and upheld and why all of us in political life particularly have an obligation to support and not undermine those institutions because very serious consequences can flow. It's interesting you say riled up. Who did the riling up? It's unquestionable that President Trump played a very important role in that. He wasn't the only actor in that space. They have a very vibrant and diverse media environment that contributed to that. But when he tried to convince and largely successfully convince his supporters that the election had been stolen from them and that they had to do something about it, I don't think what followed was terribly surprising. I mean, well, without going too much of a diversion, but it seems like some people on the right of politics aren't able to say openly what you said about about Trump. Do you think, like, what sort of reckoning reckoning should the events of 6th of January cause on the conservative side of politics and the way that debate is conducted and the way that messages can be sent to mm. people, including people who hear more extreme messages and take action from yeah. them? Yeah. Well, I try and take a step back as a parliamentarian and, and just look at this issue as someone who's interested in politics, who's, who's lived in the United States and, and follows it with great interest. I mean, the Republican Party is going to have a fascinating internal debate over the next few years of are they a Trump party, are they a post-Trump party, to what extent do they move away from him as an individual, as a figure, to what extent do they retain some of his philosophy. My observation of Trump and his impact on the, on the Republican Party is that he's obviously been a driver 
driving force for the change in the Republican Party, but he was tapping into a sentiment that was already latent and there. And the the ideology or the philosophy of Trumpism is here to stay in some form. It, it may be uh, it may have a different face. It may have different adherents and promoters. But I but I think um, the underlying causes that he tapped into are not going away. And just on that, but I want to come to exactly that point because it sort of brings us home in a way and makes us think about what the causes, what the drivers are of similar currents here. Mm. But just in terms of the capital, and you said we've all got to think about that Mm. institutionally, has the committee expressed any interests or concerns? I mean, Obviously, I was here in 1996. I can't remember mm. when that demo was, yeah. and that's obviously it's a, it's a different set of circumstances. But still, the building were, mm. was breached, right? And we think we work in the most secure yeah. building in in the country, and I'm sure we do. But I'm sure they thought the same in the Capitol, mm. which is a very locked down space. Mm. Has the Intelligence Committee thought in the wake of the Capitol? maybe we should look at what's going on in the building? Yeah, but my experience of working in the US Congress briefly and working in this building is that our building actually has always been more secure than theirs. Ours was purpose-built in a more modern era than theirs is. Theirs is a historical building and it's had so many attachments and accoutrements added onto it that it's actually historically hasn't been that secure. They built a massive new visitors' centre and visitors' wing to try and overcome that because visitors of the building were just walking into the congressional offices for a meeting with their congressman and they have a strong philosophical view that constituents should be able to access their representatives. And and I share that. And you would know in this building in recent years, we've massively increased the security apparatus and presence here, both in terms of personnel, but in terms of the physical hardening of the building. And that's been based on very good advice. And I think on balance, it's the right thing to do. But I I do share that underlying philosophy that it's unfortunate that it has made us kind of a bit more, even more remote than we already are being here away from our constituents, from the people we're here to represent. And we have become a less accessible building. And the image that we project into the immediate surrounds is one of a of an inaccessible building with all the extra obstacles we placed in the way of getting in here. Mm. Um, now again, I say that they're for good and necessary reasons. They're based on good intelligence, and and we can't afford to not heed that. But I do think a little something has been lost in that process. Yeah, sure. Just back to the the driving causes of Trumpism, right? Like, I mean, that's sort of reasonable shorthand. The sort of precursor elements of Trumpism are, are reasonable shorthand for why we're seeing an uptick in right-wing extremism. So, because, you know, we could see an uptick in left-wing extremism, right? Because there's sort of populism of both forms, right, mm-hmm. in, in evidence on in the political landscape internationally at the moment, mm. right? So why is it that these sort of white supremacist groups, often with violent sort of tendencies, mm. What is it about the current environment that is enlivening that that I think it's certainly clear that some of these groups do identify with Trump and have adopted Trump as their representative, but we should be very careful to point out that they pre-existed him and predated him in politics, both in the United States, but particularly in Europe. There's a very long history of quite radical extremism on the right in Europe. And you know, neo-Nazism, for example, in France and Germany has never gone away. Uh, it is it is an ongoing and prevalent threat, And as is Islamist extremism in those countries that targets the Jewish community in particular when we see beheading at synagogues in, in France and other um, sort of attacks. So this is this is a phenomenon that's been in this for a long time, uh, but it does appear to be increasing. It's it's really hard to associate that with any one political development. A lot of the advice that we've got in, in this early stages is it's associated
associated with scepticism about globalisation. You see lots of elements of scepticism about international trade, about breaking down barriers of migration Mm, um, and and scepticism about multilateral institutions and and what their real uh, objectives are versus their stated objectives. There's a lot of fear in some sections of the community about that. And because like we're seeing in Victoria, you know, we've seen these sort of instances of open anti-Semitism, schools and so on. Josh Frydenberg's raised it. Yep. Uh, there was that uh, that incident. The that, the, the, the Grampians, yeah, the, yeah, the Grampians, right. I mean, what the, what the hell is that? It's very hard to say. So the, the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, along with some other Jewish groups, AJAC and uh, Zionist Federation, have been tracking for many years uh, instances of anti-Semitism and trying to measure it in an uh, objective way as much as you can. So they, they do me- measure instances of swastika, um, graffiti and broken windows of Jewish businesses and that sort of thing. And, it, and it, it does vary. And if you look back over a long history, it has spikes and ups and downs associated with geopolitical events sometimes uh, that bring it to the fore. But it has appeared to be increasing recently. So it's it's a, another piece of corroborating evidence in addition to what we've got from Victoria Police and uh, ASIO and others um, who warn us about this. I, I wish I knew, I wish I could explain what that is. I mean, let's be clear, all racism is an, is an evil thing and a, and a, and a a terrible thing, but anti-Semitism is a particularly deep and old sickness of humanity. Uh, it's been with us for a very long time. It hasn't gone away. You only have to travel to Eastern Europe to visit the former Jewish quarters of cities like Vienna and Prague, where there are virtually no Jews anymore, or to visit the Holocaust Museum in Berlin and and see hear the stories of people who fled Spain in the 15th century from anti-Semitism to settle in Europe and then encountered Nazism a few hundred years later. It, it's been with us for a long time, sadly. Mm. I'm interested in how your inquiry will be tackling to what extent our security systems and and the agency's work is suited to tackling Mm. far-right extremism because, you know, they've been geared for some years towards Islamist extremism. Mm. And in some of the submissions, you know, the agencies have pointed out that some of the way these groups organise a bit looser, even though right-wing extremists have become more organised and more motivated and become more of a security threat in recent years, they they tend to organise differently. Mm. And it's been pointed out quite a few times that there isn't any far-right group that's been listed as a, as a prescribed terrorist group yeah. in Australia. So how are you going to look at that issue? And do you think that our laws are fit for purpose to deal with this growing threat. Yeah, I'm anxious not to preempt any of the kind of policy recommendations that the committee might make. It's not my role to do that on sure. my own. It's the whole. But you'll be looking task. at you'll be looking at that very but, thing. But yeah, I mean, I have I'd say I've been heartened by the way in which the seriousness of which the security agencies take it in in the briefings that I've had with them in their submissions. They demonstrate that they're devoting significant resources to it. The question of designation of a terrorist entity is a really interesting one. I mean, I think we have to kind of very vigorously follow the protocols and the process of that. It's not to be a political determination. It's a determination based on evidence and dispassionately considered. But of course, if there is a flaw in that process, if there's a defect that has prevented that from happening, then the committee would want to hear about it and will consider it. What about stepping out slightly more broadly now, just about the role of parliamentary committees and yours? The gag we had at the beginning was the powerful intelligence committee, which is the, the appellation that always follows. There's a little-known law that requires journalists to yes, include exactly. that in their copy. <laughs> it is compulsory. I know, I know it is compulsory, right? Like, you know, the powerful, right? Lowercase p or yeah, capital? Exactly, exactly. But how powerful is it? 
I think it's the most powerful committee in the parliament in the sense that it of the information it has access to and the role that it has, both in oversighting the agencies and providing scrutiny for the very significant powers that they've been given. And I think that's really appropriate in a parliamentary democracy that there is a non-executive form of oversight of, of these agencies. It's also powerful in, in the respect that it no security legislation passes the parliament until it's been considered by this committee. And generally, in, unless it's been very favourably considered by the committee, there's often recommendations, but unless it has the support of the committee, it, it tends not to advance. Yeah. How does it compare internationally? Well, this is an interesting question that's been considered by a couple of reviews, including the Richardson Review into our intelligence community. There are other parliamentary intelligence and security committees that have stronger oversight. Mm. In the United States, for example, they can stray into operational matters. We are expressly prohibited from, from getting into that. There are very good arguments on both sides of that. There, there is risk involved in allowing parliamentary committees to have operational oversight. And, and if we were ever to contemplate that, we'd have to do it very carefully. But I always come back to the principle that in a democracy, it can never only just be the executive that oversights these powers. The parliament has an independent and important role to play in that process. You, you, you were forming those, those arguments very diplomatically for obvious reasons. But you, you've said... Obviously, you you would need to weigh the various factors before reading in the Intelligence Committee to an operational matter or to building on your powers more generally, given, well, you know, I think most listeners would sort of have obvious kind of thoughts about why Mm. you need to tread carefully there. But it is a problem, is it not, in the Australian political systems a system that our accountability mechanisms, our oversight mechanisms comparatively are not as forensic as other parliaments mm. in other democracies. What do you think about that? We also have a more extensive system of independent accountability of our agencies than some other similar democracies. So before this, I was just having a meeting with the committee and the new Inspector General of Intelligence Oversight, Dr Chris Jessup, who's just been appointed. He's He's got a significant team with him and he has independent oversight responsibilities. He's not the only one. We have. A does, he need real, did he, does he need more resources? He's slated to get some more. One of the bills before the committee is a proposal from the government to give him more resources and more scope for oversight over additional agencies within the national security community. Because the uh, workload has increased. And no, no question. As, as the resources and the powers for ag- our agencies has increased, so has the task of oversighting them. And I think the government is responding to that appropriately by giving him more resources. Uh, he's not the only one. There's the independent national security legislation monitor as well, the Insulum. And of course, on the executive side, we have the Office of National Intelligence, which used to be called the Office of National Assessments, which has been reformed about two years ago to be given an expanded role of not just collating the advice of the agencies to provide to the Prime Minister for his regular security brief, but actually overseeing and coordinating those agencies. So we've got a couple of different mechanisms of oversight, and I think that's good. I think we can never rely on just one or even two. I think you know the three different forms of oversight we have are really important. And what do you say to the view that's sometimes around that your committee, it's a bit of a closed shop, mm. you know, it's the major parties, it's not minor parties, and most of the time when legislation comes before it, the committee will recommend on a bipartisan basis some changes which, yep. you know, extra safeguards. But usually the the gist of it is pass it with some amendments. Like, yeah. is there a view that, that your committee 
you know, I'm not saying you personally, mm. that this committee, this structure is sort of lends itself to ticking off on these proposals with some minor changes. Yeah, I guess there's, there's two threads out of that. One is I think the bipartisan culture of the committee is really important. I don't think it's in our national interest for us to have partisan debates between the major parties about national security in the chamber. I think that would be messy and would open us up to real threats, I think, and in particularly in the geopolitical environment we're operating in, I think that would be dangerous. So I think that's a really important cultural element of the committee that I, I will do my best to uphold. Of course, we do bring different philosophical perspectives and we won't always agree on everything, but by and large, I think we should try and maintain consensus. On the question of should there be minor party or independent members, I, I, I am a supporter of the role that minor parties and independents play in our political system. I think they are a healthy part of our political system. I think if we didn't have them, we'd be poor for it. If there's any committee that they are less appropriate for, though, I think it's this one. There is a real burden that comes with being a party of government and having knowing the responsibility that that entails. And frankly, the way that some minor party and independent members conduct themselves demonstrates that they don't feel that burden, that they can engage in uh, political stunts. Of course, you know, political stunts are not only taking place on the crossbench, but I would argue perhaps more often, perhaps more often, and and sometimes trivially in a way that I think you know any government would have to really think very carefully before putting one of those people. On the I'll, pick, I'll pick up Daniel's question and frame it in a slightly different way because you are a person who genuinely and, and passionately believes in freedom. That is why you're here. Yep. So it's funny in a way that a person who's as attentive to freedoms as you ends up in this process. Mm. So... The question I've got is to what extent, because you've got a comparative lack of oversight powers, if we reference Australia with other democracies, to what extent it renders your committee vulnerable to capture by agencies? It's sort of like it must be kind of fascinating, Mm. really, to be read in to some degree about the intelligence assessments, yep. the landscape, dealing with agencies. Now, I'm not suggesting that you would gormlessly go along and you know disengage your critical brain, but I'm just saying there's a risk hmm. that because of the way agencies operate, yeah. right? Like it's they they they're not really geared. They don't have cultures of openness and accountability. Hmm. They don't have you know, Socratic dialogues, at least not in public. So what – do you just shake yourself hard – in terms of that capture element, right? Look, it's a really good question, Catherine, and I've reflected about it a lot. I mean, firstly, on the freedoms element, I'm not going to take a radical, you know, 180-degree turn and stop talking about freedom as I have been (laughs) doing for, you know, four or five years in this place. It's still really important to me, and I'll bring that focus to the committee. And actually, I think it's appropriate that someone who has that philosophy is on the committee or even chairs the committee because I think we have a really important role in testing sceptically and questioning whether the proposals brought to us are, are both necessary and proportionate and have the appropriate protections and oversights um, that it needs. We don't. We wouldn't want anyone uh, on the committee who regards our job to be a rubber stamp and just tick off on any old proposal that comes before us. On the question of capture by agencies, th- that of course is a risk in this committee, maybe more so than any other committee, but it is a risk in other committees as well. Um, I've chaired other committees before in the financial services and the economic space that have had a real history of getting cosy with the regulators mm. that they're supposed to oversight. And you know, some of the regulators in this place in the economics sphere have bigger government relations teams than most private 
private companies do, and they spend a lot of time walking these corridors, and they like to, you know, lean on their chairs and committee members to kind of point them in a favourable way. And you know, they're human beings, and they they respond to the same kind of incentives that everyone else does. There's probably a greater danger of that in this committee, just because of the very nature of the agencies of oversight. They are very powerful. They are very respected. They do play a very important role. They're privy to things that we're not privy to, and we should really listen to them very carefully. It is their job to ask for the powers that they think are necessary and it is our job to make sure that they are necessary and that they're implemented appropriately in our kind of liberal democratic framework, maintaining the strong protections for individual liberties that we all cherish. I assume you've got some more accountability <laughs> themed questions to, but I just want to jump in on the freedom stuff. Mm. One of the things that struck me about the ASIO submission to your committee is it mentions about extreme right-wing propaganda, to jump back to that. It says that propaganda has multiple purposes, to intimidate sections of the community, to appeal to new recruits and to provoke media attention. Mm. So where do you draw the line in terms of freedom and in terms of freedom of speech when it comes to inadvertently giving attention to the types of arguments that attract new recruits? Which also draws in the platforming, deplatforming arguments with social media and all that stuff as well. Exactly. I mean, this is a real dilemma for anybody operating this space, whether you're a journalist covering it or whether you're a committee considering recommendations or evidence in it. How much do we need to be wary that we are giving them a platform which allows them to recruit? But also how much do we need to be wary of engaging in censorship's too strong a word, but uh, silencing or ignoring of these voices in a way that confirms their conspiracy theories and justifies in their minds what they believe. Victoria Police has put in a very interesting submission to the committee in a range of areas, but one of the observations they make is that legislative reforms which restrict speech or ideas or symbols tend to have the effect of confirming for the target audience that all of their fears were justified and that there is a conspiracy against them. And I would say on the issue of, say, um, Holocaust denial in Europe, that's exactly what's happened. Uh, The countries that have anti-Holocaust denial laws where it is a crime, like Germany and France, have some of the worst problems with Holocaust denial and neo-Nazism. Now, I'm not saying it causes it. There's a bit of cause and effect there. They have the laws because they've got the problem, but the laws also haven't eliminated the problem. And I think there is a real danger in driving all of the conversations underground where we can't see them, we can't monitor them. And I, I think we should all sleep less well at night if that was happening. It is difficult though, isn't it? Because uh, Anne Webster, a colleague, uh, not a Liberal Party colleague, but a Nationals colleague, had a dreadful time Mm. on social media with people with sort of QAnon style, uh, what what do you call it, beliefs? Tendencies. Tendencies. Mm. I don't know. I'm looking for the right word. So that balance you're talking about is really difficult, isn't it? Because it's she, I mean, she had to seek restitution in the courts because obviously that communication was targeted at her Mm. small town Mm. and could have caused her significant damage in terms of her character. Uh, And not not just her character. I think um, listening to Anne talk about this in the party room and other places, I think she had genuine fears for her safety as well. It's it's the uh, most terrible story. Yeah, really troubling stuff. And and it's just a lot easier than it once was to do that in a really damaging way if you're a fixated or obsessive person, as appears to be one of the issues in that case. Uh, I mean, I think we can draw a really bright line between people who are advocating violence or engaging in harassment like that and say that's well outside the bounds of... um, free speech or permissible um, public debate. That's not the kind of thing we want to encourage and we should crack down on that very harshly. People who fall short of that, though, I think we have to really reflect on the wisdom of justifying their fears um, and silencing it, not just because you know free speech is an important individual right, which we should all cherish, but because I'm not sure it's effective when it's used. Are you talking about cancelling Trump? 
on Twitter? Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't thinking of that, but um, and and Twitter is a private company, and they can have a no Trump platform if they want so to. They That's have their the freedom. Right. They have the freedom as a private um, company to remove whoever they want. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. Th- I would say I don't think it's wise, and I don't think they exercise their judgment well in that instance. I don't. Th- uh, if, if I was running a platform, that's not how I would run mine. But it's not my platform. I didn't create it. And if they want to set up a platform according to their own values, they're allowed to do that. I think they should be transparent about it and say this is what we're doing. And the problem that Twitter often encounters is is perception, if not reality, that they do it in a selective way. I mean, the Ayatollah Khamenei regularly calls for the destruction of Israel and wipe. Jews off the map on Twitter and those tweets are allowed to stand. The Chinese Communist Party engages in appalling denialism of what happens in Xinjiang, appalling justifications of violence against people in Taiwan, open sabre-rattling in in Hong Kong. I mean, these sorts of things, I think, should fall outside the same bounds, if not much worse, than what Trump ever did, and yet it's been allowed to flourish on Twitter. So I think they need to reflect on how that, the impact that has on their image as a company. It's like, we could could literally do an hour on this, but you haven't got an hour, and neither do we, sadly. So we need to start to wrap up pretty quickly. I'm going to push you again on accountability Mm. because I'm not entirely certain of your view. (laughs) Do you want more power or don't you? I'm three weeks into the new chairmanship of the committee. It would be very premature for me to be making public interviews, <laughs> oh, advocating for the committee to an expanded role. That's a bit of a cop out. I accept, it um, is a bit but of a what, one that I plan to use a little bit in my first month as chair. And um, if you have me on again in six months, I'll give Maybe you more, more um, expansive right. view. Okay, and then one more, just quickly, because you wear another hat. Well, you wear multiple hats, but one of your other hats is the deputy chair of the COVID. Select Committee in the Senate. Very interesting report, interim report this Mm. week, giving the government a rap over the knuckles about its use of public interest immunity. Like, basically, you can't have the information because, you know, you're not, Mm. you're not, you are not worthy for the information. The committee as a whole gave the government a rap over the knuckles. You're concerned that there's, that more, more of this is happening than needs to happen? That's not a very elegant question, but you know what I mean? I know what you mean. There's a long history of Senate committees disagreeing with executive governments about the scope of their powers and about the legitimacy of the public interest immunity claims that executive governments make to prevent that. And it's it's not a partisan issue. Um, oppositions can afford to be more muscular and bullshit on that than governments can. And when in government, some of those same opposition senators have uh, different views. I, I'm a believer in the institution of the Senate. I'm a believer in its powers of oversight. I think it's really important. In this instance, there are about half a dozen public interest immunity claims which are made by the government, which the committee disagreed with. And I certainly didn't object to the committee reporting to the Senate on its objection. All I've noted is that in the same process, the government has answered about 2,000 questions on notice, appeared before you know dozens of hearings. So I think it's unfair to characterise the government's response as a whole as being anti-accountability. It supported the establishment of this inquiry. It's uh, put me on as deputy chair and uh, Senator Perrin-Davey as a member, and we've supported the oversight role. Very important oversight role it has to play because governments are spending more money than they ever have, implementing more restrictive measures on our freedoms and our movements than they ever have. And the consequences of getting those things wrong are profound for all Australians. So it should come with extra oversight. And I think Katie Gallagher framed this, as you just did, really, as as an obligation on this generation of senators to stand up for the powers of the Senate. Yep. And when Katie's finance minister one day and I'm a shadow minister, I will hold her to that and I'll see if she measures up to that. I think that's very wise. And a fun note to When do you think that'll be? (laughs) Hopefully not for a very long time. (laughs) Let's wrap it. Uh, Thank you very much for your time, James. We really do appreciate it. There's lots of fascinating issues here and may well get James back in six months and see if he wants more powers. And, And Daniel, 
Daniel will certainly be following the extremism inquiry closely. Just for our readers, we think this is very important and we want to make this discussion as accessible to people as possible. Thank you to James. Thank you to Daniel. Thank you to you guys for listening. Thank you to my executive producer, Miles Martignoni, and also to Hannah Izzard. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.